You're listening to another episode of The Zag. It's a Friday morning here. Eric DeSobe is back. Another episode, episode 42, with Jenna Barron, a Pittsburgh NLC alum. Excited to hear what she's working on. I think you will be too. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. All right, Jenna, what was the dynamic of the Pittsburgh class like? I'm always curious talking to different NLC folks, especially on the East Coast and compare them to our West Coast experience? Um, one of our uh, other alumni calls our chapter the unicorn chapter, the unicorn cohort. <laughs> it was a pretty awesome dynamic. Um, Pittsburgh is a pretty big nonprofit space. I, I think the statistic is something like Pittsburgh has like the most, most nonprofits uh, for its population density. Um, so a lot of the folks who were in the cohort are involved with nonprofits. Uh, a good number of folks also um, were pursuing political careers. So it was a really great dynamic of people coming from different backgrounds, um, personally and academically and professionally, um, to just talk about our vision for ourselves, but also for the future of our communities. So it was a really, really powerful group of people and we had a fantastic group dynamic. We're all still pretty close to this day. Nice. And then I hadn't been to Pittsburgh until the retreat last year and definitely enjoyed being there. It was a good time. Were most of the fellows from like Pittsburgh, the city core where we were, or does it actually spread out pretty far? In my year, most folks were from the core. Uh, there are, is was somebody in our cohort who works in Washington County, which is um, outside of the city. Pittsburgh's based in is in Allegheny County, um, and then in the past couple years, we've had people who are from the outskirts of Pittsburgh, um, like Manesson, for example. One of the current mayor there is an NLC alum. Oh wow. Uh, so, so yeah, most folks are from Pittsburgh, but a good number also are attracted from outside. Okay. Yeah. I'm curious to hear that the, such a nonprofit, um, dominated place, I think out here for us, we tend to have skewed a little bit more towards education and just kind of the earlier folks who started the chapter had that bent and kind of went in that direction. Uh, but nonprofits play a big role in our chapter too. And it's exciting to hear that it's also the case for you guys. And then your nonprofit, love to hear more about. So when people ask you what you do for a living, how do you usually answer that? Yeah, I tell them that I'm the executive director of Arise, uh, which is an acronym for Alliance for Refugee Youth Support and Education. And our work is really around organizing programming for immigrant refugee students or English learners living in our region. And did you have a background in education or a particular connection to this type of work? What led you to start it? Yeah. Um, academically, my background is in anthropology and African studies. Um, but through that, uh, I became really interested in education justice on a global level. Um, but especially, especially on a local, uh, national level. And uh, as an undergrad at the University of Pittsburgh, I had been a tutor uh, for refugee families in the area um, and developed a lot of really great relationships with kids and parents. Um, and it became very apparent to me that um, the education system was not designed for English learners to succeed or to thrive by any means. I think there's an argument to be made that the education isn't system isn't designed for um, a host of kids to succeed, but um, English learners experience uh, even even more extreme barriers considering they don't speak English. Um, 
So when I was a student at Pitt, I organized a summer program for English learners living in the county. Uh, and this work through Arise grew out of that. Um, so it kind of was from a background of, um, you know, glo- being globally minded, but also caring a whole lot about education justice on a local level. And then when you say English language learners, how many languages are we talking about? In our summer program last year, we had over 10 languages represented. Um, right now, our biggest languages in Pittsburgh um, are Swahili and Arabic. Uh, most folks are coming from uh, the De- uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Syria, and Iraq. Uh, but we also have a lot of folks who speak Nepali who are from the Bhutanese community. And then you mentioned the summer program. So is that the, the core program you guys do, or do you guys also push into schools during the school year? Yeah, so we have multiple programs, uh, after-school programs, smaller, more um, specialized programming, like an arts, art, artist and maker workshop space for immigrant women. Um, but our summer program is our biggest. So we serve uh, uh, about 100 kids through that program. So it is a lot of our time and capacity invested in that. Um, and we do partner with the school district um, working with teachers to access curriculum and best practices uh, so that kids during our, our after-school programs and our summer programs are staying familiar with the structure of education um, and really developing those skills. Yeah, so I used to teach. I taught fourth grade for many years in Compton, and English language learning was a big part of what we were doing and becoming better as a teacher meant having stronger skills about English language instruction, and usually that's just the best instruction for all students. So it was something that was very important to all of us. You know, when you think about ways you would give advice to teachers or support teachers so that in the school day itself, in every classroom, what kind of things would you want to see so that they're really lifting up and celebrating the different languages that are present in the classroom every day? Yeah, that is such a great question. Um, Building community is really such an important part, I think, of Uh, supporting English learners, considering just their stories prior to arriving in their new home, right? And and it's awesome that you were a teacher. You saw this firsthand, but um, kids are migrating and uh, being in a pretty, um, I don't want to say unstable, but um, yeah, their stories prior to coming here um, in terms of having to leave home and living in a refugee camp, maybe living in another country prior to coming here, um, have really gone through a lot before arriving here. And so just to be able to create community so that they can feel solidarity um, and also a space to, to share their stories, I think is a very important part and in, in helping students feel like they have the foundation to succeed. Um, And I also think a big part of this, and I see this happening in some schools in Pittsburgh, too, which is bringing in community members to be staff at the school so that kids have an access point if they don't yet, if they're not yet familiar with speaking English. um, It's awesome to have an interpreter and a staff person who speaks their language to be able to help mediate situations where it really appears that a student needs to express themselves um, through language. Uh, And I know that kids get so frustrated um, at times with not being able to speak the same language as the adults in the the building. Um, And I think just to be able to uh, create a space where they do feel solidarity 
um, is really, really important. And, you know, to give credit to teachers, I think there are a lot of teachers out there who are working so hard on doing that. It's just that the way that we measure success and the expectations laid out in the design of our curriculum is really not realistic. Um, it's not a, it's not realistic that um, within a year of students getting here that they're going to fully understand English and be able to be on the same same level as their peers in terms of accessing content. Um, and I think that that is a limitation of the design right now. Yeah. Uh, when we come back, I want to ask you some more questions on that uh, expectation on curriculum. Uh, you're listening to The Zag. Stay tuned. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. A question I have for you, I'd be curious of your response. So how much attention is paid to the student staying fluent in his or her home language? Um, how does that balance play out? What kind of tensions or pressures do you see between, like you're mentioning, a, a kind of pressure and rush to learn English as fast as possible, but does that come at the expense sometimes of the celebration of the home language or the um, ability for a student to keep speaking the home language fluently or writing it fluently? I would say definitely. Um, there in Pittsburgh, there are no bilingual education programs um, oh, really? for this specific population. I mean, there, we do have some uh, institutions that are private where kids can learn in a bilingual environment. Though, you know, we know that the kids who are accessing those are not immigrants and refugees. Um, and so, I think. I think that our ESL department is thinking about that and is knowledgeable about bilingual programs, but um, maybe because Pittsburgh is a smaller city, like if we're comparing it to, you know, New York City or um, the immigrant population of Minneapolis, for example, uh, maybe they're just, they feel that there isn't like a strong enough precedent for this to happen, but I think it is a great need. Um and I think that the school system is just like limited in its ability to be able to create those spaces um, or maybe just need to sort of reimagine how they can create those spaces where kids are able to um, do assignments or access content in different languages. Um, I mentioned having interpreters available. That's great. Um, but, you know, having 10 plus languages in your classroom is really a challenge when doing that. That's what I was going to ask. So it sounds like the mix of languages in one classroom or one school is is real. I think what we're seeing a little bit here in LA is oftentimes it's pretty binary. It could just be English and Spanish. Certain parts of the city, you would have more of a mix, but sometimes it's just, just two. Uh, but it sounds like for Pittsburgh, it's more a case where you would have five, six, seven, eight, or as many as 10 different languages in one school. Is that is that right? Yeah. I mean... Wow. Typically, it's multiple dialects of Arabic, um, multiple um, Somali Bantu languages, um, multiple dialects of Swahili. Um, so it is it is very, very um, varied. Uh, and that really does pose a challenge. And something we're trying to do this summer, we're doing a little bit of work on our summer program curriculum is that when we do these creative expression and creative writing prompts, which is a big part of what we do um, to support literacy, is having poems and different writing prompts that we give to students as samples to help them begin writing, that some of those can be accessed in different languages and, and translated beforehand. So there is a space for them to do a little bit of that. 
And then as you were thinking about building out your your team for the nonprofit itself, what kind of considerations were you thinking about who would be on staff? Did you want to have as many languages represented and so folks speak those naturally or were you looking for more traditional nonprofit skills because you know running a nonprofit is hard? How did how did your actual team come together? Yeah, so I'm trying to think of how to be short and sweet about this, but um, it is a little bit complicated because um, we've been doing this work for five years. Just this past summer, I made the decision to do it as a fully fledged organization. So I'm technically in startup mode right now. Um, But I do want to mention that that was a huge consideration when it came to our board. Um, having a board that represented the experiences of the youth that we serve, um, and also who have experience working with immigrant and refugee youth, um, and refugee families. So I'm proud to say that our board really does represent that. Um, and with our staff, it's actually really, they're all volunteer right now. So, uh, we, we have, a mix of people who are allies, so folks who are not immigrants and refugees who have just volunteered over the course of years and are still basically like staff. Um, but as we continue to develop our capacity and ability to hire people, uh, that is something that's at the forefront of our minds is making sure that a huge consideration is um, and making that staff decision is in hiring immigrants and refugees themselves and folks who have those shared experiences with kids. Because if anybody has the vision for how to improve outcomes academically and personally for the youth that we serve, it is them. Yeah. And then last thing, because you are in startup mode, like what skills as a nonprofit leader, or do you still feel like you want to develop more fully? Is it fundraising pieces is a building that team piece like we were just talking about what are the things that you really want to try to improve upon yeah everything um <laughs> really though it, i've been describing to people that like this has been one of the most exciting and difficult learning experiences it is the most difficult and exciting learning experience of my life um i want to improve my fundraising abilities i want to become a more uh visionary leader um I, I want to be, um, you know, a better manager and supporter of staff as well. Um, and most importantly, I want to be a better advocate, uh, somebody who not only is constantly working on organizational development and program development, um, but also is like present in the community um, and responding to issues that impact immigrant and refugee communities. So those are the really big areas. Nice. And then last thing, one more plug how can folks follow the organization how can they be supportive yeah so please follow us on social media whether it's facebook or instagram the acronym is a-r-y-s-e and uh, you could also uh, donate or learn more about volunteering and our resources and curriculum just by hopping on our website which is arise a-r-y-s-e pgh.org Awesome. Sounds good. Well, listen, thanks for being on and thanks for everyone for listening to this episode of The Zag. You can find all past ones. And like I said, there are a bunch. We're over 40 now in the iTunes store, Google Play store, SoundCloud, all those good places. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon. Take care.